0: This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Welcome to all of our attendees. Um, It's very exciting to host you all on our First, uh, first webinar as part of the WPS at 20 seminar series. I'm Catherine O'Rourke, I'm TJI director and I'm um, convening the seminar series. Uh, it's uh, really exciting to see how we've been able to facilitate this international attendance um, through going online. So I'm grateful to you all for connecting with us. Um, this is um, the fourth in our series, uh, WPS at 20 seminar series. So Whilst the others were um, not online. The recordings and podcasts are available. So I'll encourage you to go to go look those up. Um, And today I'm very pleased to welcome uh, my TJI colleague, uh, Professor Brandon Hamber, um, to give a paper on, to give his paper on masculinities and WPS. Um, I'm particularly grateful to Brandon for being so accommodating about the the move to the online format and um, and indeed to uh, shaping the content of his paper. so um, thank you. So is going to speak for about 40 minutes. Um, and at that point, then we'll move to q and
1: um, So thank you, firstly, to Catherine, to TJI for giving me the opportunity to speak. Uh, it's been a really, really important uh, seminar series on on WPS uh, 20 years um, down the line. Um, and I've been asked to really speak about the issue of masculinities and WPS. Uh, I sort of strangely have ended up producing uh, two papers for this talk, Uh, the first one uh, ended up really being about masculinities and uh, the social imaginary, which I would be happy to share with people, Uh, but on reflection and discussion with Catherine really felt that actually the paper itself didn't focus enough on on the WPS issues and, and people are tuning in and there there are a lot today uh, might want to be focused a bit more directly on that topic so I'm gonna try to restrict my comments today a little bit more towards the WPS agenda and the issues of, of masculinities uh, in relation to that um, but by way of introduction and before I sort of outline what I'll be doing today um, I just wanted to sort of maybe say a little bit about how I got interested in this topic. Um, and it was partly through my own work and particularly with uh, a colleague from South Africa, Wilhelm Favut and Alistair Little in Northern Ireland. But we've been doing a lot of dialogue work over the years with different groups and, and mainly with former combatants. Um, And I started through that process to really reflect on how I was using my own masculinities in different ways uh, in some of that, dialogue work uh, and how we were facilitating both positive and negatively those processes and when we brought women into those processes and when we didn't Um, and it started to get me really thinking uh, you know way back now a decade ago um, about what was really going on in that process and in post uh, conflict uh processes uh, particularly and 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 started a, really a journey of reading much wider on the issue of masculinities um, and what i found uh, through that process was that actually although there's a massive literature on masculinities much of that has come out of uh the west um uh, not that much of it actually focuses on conflict, although there's a growing focus on that. There's some really incredible work around global politics and international relations, people like Cynthia Enloe who've written extensively on, on, on masculinities, but actually it's a relatively underexplored area. Uh, And where it is dealt with, uh, what I've seen is that it's largely talked about in a problematic sense and saying we have to address violent masculinities in the conflict context and in the peacebuilding context, which is, of course, uh, correct. But exactly how we go about doing that is not really developed to a great uh, degree. And that's something I, I also myself have really struggled with. Um, in some senses, it's easier to to create an analytic picture of masculinities and a peace, security, women, gender related issues and violence than there's often to maybe pose solutions. And I'm hoping today I don't fall into that trap, although on some levels I sort of will because I'm going to maybe provide a, an analysis or not maybe will be providing. An analysis uh, from a masculinities perspective of the WPS agenda. Um, I'm a little concerned in that regard, in that uh, what I'll say might be interpreted as maybe being overly critical. And and I don't really want to undermine the progress that has been made um, and the recognition of sexual violence and its political content and the importance of participation of, of women in political processes and there is much that needs to be celebrated over the last 20 years. Um, but what I'm going to do today is really just focus quite specifically on on the, the resolutions around WPS and, and sort of unpack them maybe with a step back from a masculinities perspective. And and that might seem overly critical in how I do that and maybe overly generalistic in some ways. Um, But I'm hoping that what that would do is at least stimulate some discussion. um, And uh, I'm drawing, I suppose, on the spirit of uh, Cynthia Enloe's idea of feminist curiosity um, and we'll be unpacking and being critical in that regard. But I don't really want it to be seen as undermining that agenda in any way rather to to be seen as building it into the future. So what I'm going to do is really four things in the paper. I'm going to start with a couple of framing comments. I'm then going to touch on a few definitions around the issue of masculinities. I know for some of you uh, watching and joining us today, you'll know some of that, but uh, with such a big audience, I wasn't quite sure who might be out there and who might not be out there. And then I'm just going to outline what I would call three dominant trends in relation to masculinities in the WPS or linked to the WPS agenda more generally. And then make a final uh, conclusion, uh, which will be slightly wider and touch on that issue of the social imaginary that I started off on uh, earlier in in the first paper that I I prepared. So in terms of the actual framing comments, um, I, I think what's always interesting when I talk about the issue of masculinities is I always uh, feel the need to start off by saying this is not what I am saying. Um, And I think that that's interesting because maybe it tells us about the challenge of uh, and the sensitivities of uh, men and, and masculinities in relation to the WPS agenda. So I always sort of feel this need to start off by saying, look, I'm not saying things are completely equitable. I'm not saying where are the men and how come are we not focusing on men. I'm not saying let's get into some strange battle about the equality of services between male victims of sexual violence and female victims of sexual violence. I'm not saying uh, that this is all stimulated by some idea of a crisis in masculinity that's real rather than a sort of invented social construct. Um, And I often make this introduction when I talk about uh, men and masculinities, um, because I think that the fact that I always feel the need to make all these introductory points, in some senses, points to uh, some of the challenges around masculinities in and of itself, and the sensitivity uh, sensitivities of, of, of the issues that we're actually dealing with. Um, so I wanted to sort of make that uh, by way of a sort of general introduction before maybe getting into the definitional issues and the the WPS agenda specifically Uh, and we can take that up in question time and and maybe uh, someone else can uh, postulate as to why I feel the need to sometimes make all these caveats before I start Um, and I should add that there's actually another caveat for me which is that actually so much of what is written about gender broadly and also in terms of uh, conflict particularly, it really comes from a very heteronormative context, um, and I'm not even sure in my own work that I've really extended that boundary uh, sufficiently. But let's take up some of those framing comments um, in the in the question time. So just moving on to the definitional issues, the second part of the paper, um, and I know for some of you out there this is something you would know very well, uh, but I, I sort of feel the need to just make a few of these definitional points before I get into the agenda specifically and and for simplicity's sake when I talk about masculinities drawing on Konal's work I'm really thinking about the multiple ways and he she uses this really good phrase which is ways of doing male so the multiple ways of doing male and uh, that is such a broad scope of things um You know, there's masculinities performed in the boardroom, in the tribal council, on the battlefield, in the gay nightclub, in the coffee shop where your metrosexual barista serves you coffee uh, by the novelist who writes erotic cowboy novels, or when you go to your, before the lockdown, your Taekwondo class uh, in the evening. There's so many different types of of masculinities Um, and masculinities themselves are always relational. um, And in, in a sense, they're also ideal. Um, they're ideal types. And Connell's uh, concept that many of you, you know, tuning in would know uh, of hegemonic masculinities is really important for me because it does sort of make us think of the different types of dominant forms of masculinity. Uh, and I think that why his use of the word hegemony is so interesting is because it sort of exists inside of the ether. And they're these sort of dominant hegemonic ideas of masculinities uh, that are out there. And these differ from culture and community and different different societies. Um, but importantly, uh, these types of hegemonic masculinities uh, are somewhere sort of, as he would say, assumed, or she would say assumed to be um, normal. Um, and only a minority of men actually uh, end up in enacting them. Um, And so it's sort of an aspirational place. Uh, uh, But for me, what's really important is what uh, transition, political transition, political conflict means for these uh, hegemonic types of of masculinity. Um, And what we know is that this is uh, constantly a process of tension and it's constantly changing. And one of the challenges, and I'll come to this when we talk about the WPS agenda, is that we tend to think about these dominant hegemonic ideas as really being in the conflict field about sort of soldier warrior type masculinities uh, but actually these masculinities that are dominant and subordinate in different ways uh, exist in all sorts of spaces you know arguably the sort of neoliberal politics of there is no other choice and uh, the way politics plays itself out and the securocrats that exist within our societies these are also forms of of uh, Uh, hegemonic masculinities and so they're always in a process of of change Um, and I'm reminded or recently was looking at the British Army's new recruitment campaign Um, and their new recruitment campaign is aimed at what they call Generation Z so the 16 to 25 year olds and they they came up with this set of posters for those of you who haven't seen them which are quite remarkable you know uh, some of them for example I'll just quote from them you know, it says snowflakes, your army needs you and your compassion. Uh, that's one slogan. Me, 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 millennials, your army needs you and your self belief. And then another one phone zombies, your army needs you and your focus. Um, now, this campaign actually was incredibly successful in terms of recruitment numbers, uh, but it talks to how masculinities can be changed and, and reflected in all sorts of different ways, because while this sort of new idea of the millennials, which I mean, partly these slogans are insulting, I, I showed them to my young son and, and he felt that many of them were quite insulting actually, but they're also built on the background of uh, the old recruitment, uh, first world war posters of lord kitchener that your country needs you so you know whilst enacting something new they're also enacting something very tradi- traditional um and and old and old school so i know those ideas of multiple masculinities of hegemonic masculinities of masculinities being in contestation with each other for many of you listening on this call, this is not something which is new but i felt by way of introduction i needed to to make those points um, and they do feed into some of my my later uh, some of my later later comments um so to move on to uh, wps uh, specifically uh, what i'm gonna do um is really just point to what I've said is three dominant trends and and I'm not the first person to point out some of these trends Um, and I'm going to base it largely on 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 looking at the the various UN resolutions so and again it might be slightly unfair in that there's much work going on around the the resolutions and how these are interpreted and used in different in different contexts and so my focus is maybe a little bit overly critical and limited uh, but hopefully it'll stimulate some form of discussion so i'm really going to make three points in terms of my dominant trends and and the first of those is that when we look at how masculinities are are talked about and men and boys in particular, that the focus is generally violation centric so it really focuses on either as men as perpetrators or as uh, men as victims of sexual violence and, and the second trend and i'm gonna unpack each of these uh, concerns this idea of participation and engagement. Um, So men participating with women for change uh, around, particularly around issues of sexual violence. Um, And I'm gonna extend that argument and say, how does that manifest itself? Well, it seems to be that it largely manifests itself in relation to individual and sort of project driven interventions rather than a conceptual idea of of structural change. And then the third, area that i'm going to to focus on in terms of dominant trends i've just called how change happens but it's really looking at what is sort of the underlying theory of change that's going on um and again this is not new many people have written about wps have said this so it's not just me but that it it really comes from a very sort of liberal policy framework um and that to a large degree this constrains our vision of how we think about uh masculinities so to just briefly unpack each of these um in terms of the 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 violation centric um approach uh, as many others have pointed out helen toki christola and philip schultz many others um and uh, also more more recently christine and mary calder uh Yadev, many others um, have noted that you know the earlier un resolutions um were exclusively focused on women and girls um as potential victims and it's only really in 2013 with the un resolution uh, 2106 that sexual violence against men is for the first time uh, acknowledged um and in, in many senses given the gravity and importance of that issue this is a this is a, a major a major step which really begins in 2013, and then later on we also see the Rome Statute, uh, you know, making the comment, you know, undoubtedly, it is beyond any doubt that men and boys can also be raped, and in the most uh, recent resolutions, 2019, uh, 2467, and resolution 2493, uh, again, also note that men and boys can be victims of of sexual violence. Um, so why am I sort of mentioning this? Well. Uh, I mention it because just really, I suppose, a textual analysis of looking at these resolutions um, that firstly, men are either assumed to largely be the perpetrators, which in many cases, of course, they are, uh, although this isn't always uh, that clear. And then largely, women and boys are actually mentioned in these resolutions. It's really about their their form of, of victimization. So we're sort of dealing with a fairly polemic idea of the role of men and boys now there is a third dimension which is about their participation and engagement which is in in, in the next part that i will will talk about but when it comes to the first part it, it's really uh, fairly violation centric and of course this is not new to many people tuning in the same could actually be said about that in relation um uh, to women but the point i'm making is that a textual reading of these resolutions really limits the idea of masculinity and in some senses mirrors the critiques of the resolution, their resolutions in relation to women, that their violation and fail to take into account the multiple roles of men and women in, in conflict, uh, in conflict processes. Um, so what is the consequence of this? Well, there are multiple consequences for me. Um, and the first is that as important, and I wouldn't want to minimize the serious impact of violence against women and the role of men in that and also of men as, as, as victims. Um, but in most conflicts, most men are not violent and most men are civilians in war. And uh, we need to be asking very serious questions about uh, how men respond to war, both positively and negatively in different contexts. And by looking at just these sort of polemics of victims and perpetrators, we, we tend to miss this middle piece. Um, and that includes all le- different levels of Vulnerability, whether that's men as refugees, whether it's uh, young young boys and how they're trying to renegotiate the environments that they're in, but the polemic, in in a sense, misses this middle level. Um, of course, it also misses that many women are complicit in uh, the development of of violent uh, of violent masculinities, um, and then it assumes that men themselves cannot really be uh, really be vulnerable, and where they are vulnerable. Uh, and are victimized, it tends to lead to the sort of discourse around emasculation. And I think that Philip Schultz's work on this recently is is really instructive, where he also talks about uh, that this sort of misses the fluidity of the responses to different types of, of violation. Uh, most importantly for me, I think it limits the way that we think about how men uh, react to war. And of course, we know, and there's lots of literature on this that you know after war and a return back home of many men try to reestablish traditional roles and they enact various forms of violence and This is really important and, and I wouldn't want to be minimizing that, but equally, I think that if we want to use that term, the social imagination of what happens after war tends to fall in that direction rather than saying actually the responses to this are are really multiple, and the work that I did with um Elizabeth Gallagher in in Northern Ireland, uh, where we were looking at sort of post-conflict Northern Ireland, um, where indeed, yes, of course, we see a continuity of hyper-masculinity in terms of paramilitary groups post uh, the conflict. But actually, our research with young men uh, really showed that many of them tended to uh, act out against against themselves in many senses in the first instances uh, with high levels of uh, suicide self-harm risk-taking risk-taking behavior after the conflict so emerging from the conflict with low self-esteem with lots of mental health problems um, and i say this again not to minimize but to to really point to the sort of wide range of of responses that we might see to to conflict so rather than really being these young men who emerge from the conflict as young lions enacting masculinities in a certain way that's violent and harmful to others. Actually, they're enacting that in a very negative way uh, in terms of their own their own sort of uh, their own own types of 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 mental health. And so uh, in a sense, I think we need to be much more attuned to the multiple roles uh, where, yes, different men after conflict reassert their masculinities in very negative, toxic ways. Actually, many other men might just acquiesce to that process. And of course, there are also the those who might grow and change. And I say all of this because I think one of the key Lessons on the literature, certainly, and in practice around masculinities is amplifying these multiple forms of masculinities is one of the ways that we can start to challenge, particularly toxic and violent, uh, violent uh, masculinity So, not to minimize, but rather to challenge. So, in terms then of my second point, uh, the ideas of participation and engagement. Um, so, there seem to be a part of the resolutions which focus on. Uh, this issue of victimization and perpetration but then uh, as we've seen from 2013 also this call for uh, men to be much more engaged in leadership and young men particularly uh, in also furthering the equality agenda and women's role in peace building um and so on and so forth so resolution two th- in 2013-2106 in enlistment of men and boys in the efforts to combat all forms of violence against women are central to the long-term efforts to prevent sexual violence in armed conflict and post-conflict uh, situations and these again are reiterated in resolutions in uh, 2000 and 15 um, and again in the two resolutions in 2019 um but what's interesting and christine chink and mary Calder, and punam yadev in a, a very recent paper actually make this point and i'll just quote from them they say, in terms of the 2019 resolutions, that these actually fail to either advance the limited concept of engagement by men and boys or make any reference to the positive roles that can be played by men and boys in securing sustainable peace. So they're almost saying to me that it's it's, it's like something which is now added in, a bit like, and men can also be victims of sexual violence, rather than really starting to unpack what does that actually mean? And and that's an incredibly difficult question, which I don't really have have the answer uh, to um, and at the risk of of being overly critical, as i've said multiple times um, and not to uh, undermine the important work that 's going on, the way that this tends to manifest itself is really at a project level, so in campaigns like the he for she campaign, the men engage movement it 's on us um, and particularly David Darrismith, in uh, wrote a really good piece. Um, called Engaging Men and Boys in Women, Peace and Security Agenda Beyond the Good Men Industry, where he sort of really tackles this question of of the sort of projected idea, projectivization idea of of how this engagement starts to to look. Um, And again, stepping back and maybe being overly critical, but uh, based on this, uh, the challenge for me is it tends to sort of put forward a very individual group transformational model Um, And that somehow transformation really happens through changing individual men. Not that that's important, but uh, not that that's not important, um, but really conscientizing young men to be different, um, to sort of engage differently. Um, And and my my challenge with that is that I I feel that that's often framed in a very sort of Western liberal terms. Um, So... uh, it it assumes that we can create the skills with individuals so that they can make the right choices, whether that's about violence or how they treat women in their lives or or whatever that might be. Whereas actually in many contexts, you know, if you're being forcefully recruited into a paramilitary group or an armed group, you don't really have that many choices. So it's sort of based on this individual choice, rational choice type model. It's often infused with a very sort of individualized, medicalized therapeutic sense of, of, of enlightenment. And maybe for me, uh, the two most critical points, the first is that actually it's also not always clear about who these men are who are to be involved. Um, And it somehow seems to be that generally we're talking about younger men who are prone to violence, who are the potential perpetrators of the future. Um, And almost uh, without saying it, somehow excludes powerful men, those men who might be part of the problem, uh, you know, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's military leaders, whether it's the stockbroker who makes money off the arms sales, are our programs extending to those people or is it really targeted at this assumption that where this violence is driven from is by these younger men in certain communities, generally poorer uh, poorer communities, which is not to say that's not the case in many situations, but I think it feeds into a bit of a model that, doesn't really answer the question, who are the men that we're actually talking about who need to be engaged in, in this discussion. And then the second, I think, really important point for me about this is that it does. And, and Derry, Derry Smith talks about this as the good man in my work. I've talked about it as the new man. Uh, but it also f- often feeds into this idea that, you know, what we're really seeking here is some sort of normative idea of the new uh, of the new man. Um, you know, a bit like the, you know, the cosmopolitan magazine idea of the feminist, the the new man needs to be everything in touch with their emotions, share household chores, equitable and non-violent, although of course it's okay to be violent if you're there to be protective of your home or in self-defense, uh, and, and of course you also have to find the time to be sort of immaculately groomed, and in some ways we're sort of creating this similar type of idea of, of the new man, and it's sort of projects without, I think many people meaning it to do that, but projects the sort of normative understanding of what a new enlightened masculinity is and in some of the research we did in South Africa, what was fascinating about this is that we actually found uh, certain men taking on this idea. So one of the, the objections that some Men had to the new equality agenda in in South Africa was they'd say oh well now I, I can't really be the breadwinner anymore and that uh, you know with women being more advanced in my society I'm feeling like I'm a second-class citizen uh, and what's really interesting about that is that for many of those men actually they were never the breadwinners and actually women were the people who were keeping the home running within the the, 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 the apartheid apartheid system so they've sort of created this idea of the new man as the sort of idealized Western notion of the family and their critiques of the the equality agenda are being played out against this idea, which uh, I think is really uh, interesting. It's what uh, Tina Sideris calls sort of uh, uh, playing it out against sort of visions, a vision of patriarchy. (laughs) Um, And and so for me, I think that that idea of the sort of the new man, almost gets reinforced by this idea of engagement. And we have to work quite hard to try and think about what does that engagement look like uh, in 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 a different way. And, and I think that links really to the final point in this uh, this, this section, which is that um, I'm, I'm still not really sure what the sort of partnership relationship is. And, and I think that to some degree, the wording of these resolutions almost projects a fairly functional and instrumentalist idea that women's security is somehow linked in a very functional way to men um, and actually what we know is that those gendered relations and those gendered clusters are more much more uh, nuanced and so I don't really have the answers but it's to point to really my second challenge which is what does including men really mean and how do we extend that beyond a very sort of individualized project focus um, to recognize also that many of the masculinities and violent masculinities are fueled not just by certain individuals but by much wider systems. And that links to uh, then my final sort of set of observations in relation to, to to WPS. Um, and again, many people have made these points about the sort of liberal framing of the, of that policy agenda. And maybe, you know, it's unfair to sort of focus on, on a set of texts because, in a way, uh, of course, they, they, they're going to be limited in, in what they can actually do. Um, but I think in and of themselves, as important as they are, it reinforces the idea that how change happens is largely from a sort of top down policy, uh, policy driven, uh, policy-driven type of perspective. Um, and what we know is that uh, there are multiple variations in masculinities and how they play themselves out um, in in war. And it is important to highlight these competing um, uh, masculinities. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that on some levels, uh, by, by that limited focus on engagement and the limited focus on Either perpetration or or victimisation, we sort of miss the wider systemic picture, which I guess is many academics would make that make uh, make that type of point. But I think that it's quite important because it does raise questions about where do we think and how do we think change is going to happen, which is really my my third area of of observations. Now, in fairness, the later resolutions do begin to acknowledge this uh, in two, four, six, seven in two thousand and nineteen. For example it talks about the arms trade it talks about the role of the private sector so i think it is starting to get to more of that uh, systematic issue and, and maybe a policy document can never grapple with that systemic uh, those systemic questions but um I do think that we need to be uh, need to be aware of that. And partly also, and, and this links to some of my wider work, which I'm not going to talk about too much today, but really about the sort of social imaginaries of masculinities and of peace. Um, and one of those, for example, being, you know, how we turn the gorilla into a peacemaker, um, you know, in their new immaculate suit, Uh, and you know hostilities have ended and they've been sort of reformed in some shape or form but actually very often what we see is they're still operating male-centric governments they're still the big man who is in control and all we've really done is shift the 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 terrain of the masculinities from a sort of very obvious violent form of masculinity during combatant times into a different type of masculinities and and how do we deal with that within the WPS agenda I find uh, quite challenging uh, as I'm 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 sure many of you do uh, so so therefore we need an analysis of masculine power within and between the very structures that are said to be essentially bringing and building peace in societies moving out of violence. So we need to understand how structures, whether they're truth commissions, government inquiries and committees, funding agencies, demobilization processes, transnational corporations, the security sector, the development process, international monetary bodies, educational institutions, the media, how they're all reshaping uh, masculinities and power in a continual, Uh, in a continual type of a process. And I'm not sure how a policy agenda gets to that, but when I look at the limited focus that we've had so far on men and masculinities, to me it just seems to miss that entire rather difficult, um, difficult issue. So for me it's not just an exercise of academic uncovering and sort of the deconstruction of power. Uh, it's it's a question of policymaking in which we need to understand the drivers of violence which are beyond the control of the actions of specific individuals or specific groups and they're embedded in a much more complex uh, set of uh, corporate entities and state, private sector and 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 the media. Um, so how do we really move beyond that sort of very liberal conceptualization of gender relations and and democracy? So for me, uh, maybe it's a bit of an overly academic point but uh, my third sort of area is really saying there is a sort of a structural and systemic failure about how we are understanding the operationalization of masculinities if we're only seeing it within perpetration and changing certain individuals and certain groups and again just for argument's sake i'm being quite simplistic in how i'm I'm putting that forward i'll end on this Um, in my more recent work i've started to try and add a third dimension to the sort of structural and the systemic and that's really uh, really the the symbolic. Um and I, I think the point I really want to make by that and, and I'll conclude with this is that in terms of masculinities, the failure is equally evident in the victimhood many men now claim. Um, so as we know there's been this sort of reclaiming that men are somehow now the new victims, blah blah blah, and we can have a discussion about all of that. Um, but I think that there's also failure for many of us in terms of how we project something different. So even the term like backlash, which I've used so routinely in my own work, implies things are entirely on track. We're entirely on track, and we knew exactly where they were going. Uh, and somehow now there's been this backlash against that. When actually we're not quite sure where gender relations are going, and it's not really um, either WPS agenda itself is not really. Uh, a completely technical, legal, and um, and 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 rational uh, process. So for me, this mirrors the types of relational and technocratic debates that have dominated the peace literature for decades now. Yet those of us who work in this field within governments or communities know that peace is not really made through the law or in the boardroom or at the negotiating table or in the therapy room or at the community workshop. Uh, all because. Everybody just suddenly does the right thing in some sort of rational, calculated way that peace is made when people see both practically but also some sort of imagined idea of the future that peace is worth making and that it resonates with some sort of societal meaning that is not merely logical um, because conflict itself, particularly when we think of identity, is not merely uh, merely logical. Um, so. At the risk of maybe concluding in a rather esoteric way when i review the wps resolutions for all that they've changed uh, and their positive contribution for me they still feel quite limited in scope and particularly in vision not only for how we think about men boys and and masculinity but in terms of the sort of wider vision that we have of gender relations of in the world uh, At the at the risk of overstating it and so we can all aspire to a world where there's less gender-based violence, where everyone has equal participation regardless of gender, but there is something that feels rather unremarkable when it becomes it comes to the sort of vision that we have, uh, whether it's in the sort of new men conceptualization of, of gender relations. So if men and boys are to subscribe to a new future, it seems to me we need a much more radical social imagining uh, of what new altered gender, re- gender relations uh, might actually be. So, so thank you very much, and I, I look forward to the, the questions and comments.
0: Thank you, Brandon. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to just enable people's audio now. So, if you would, uh, I know we have a, a text question already, but. Um, if you'd like to ask a question if you can use your raise hand function and you can you have enabled your audio now so you, you should be able to speak um brandon we've had a question come in already the written text um so let me just find that um uh, from victoria um how can we change systems to be more inclusive to many different forms of masculinities and feminities so it's obviously a a tricky one but this was getting to the sort of practicalities of of how we might begin to do this a bit differently
1: okay well thank you and it's uh hard not to see victoria i don't know where victoria is but hello victoria and thank you very much uh for your your question um so how do we make uh masculinities more inclusive and change systems i mean I, i think the 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 sort of simple answer to that uh, for me is that we also we need to amplify the multiple forms of of masculinities um and so there are people who are doing that so if you look at um uh bars and stern's work you know where they're looking at the multiple ways that masculinities are 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 being represented in in conflict contexts you know whether that's the soldier who ascribes to a desk job and an office job and what that means in terms of protection of their families compared to the soldiers who ascribe to the sort of warrior type of of masculinities. Um, and so I think we do need more of that work that really unpacks the complexity of, of masculinities um, and a, a sort of cultural sensitivity to that as well, because I think we have seen that to some degree. I mean, if you look at Men and Masculinities, the journal, there's lots of work within Western contexts around emphasizing these multiple forms of masculinities. Um, But I think in the conflict field, we really need to do that. And uh, one avenue very directly for me in relation to that and one of uh, our Ph.D. researchers, Seamus Campbell, has just written a great Ph.D. on this very topic um, is is to also look at uh, civilian men. I think that so much work is focused on um, competent forms of masculinities. And now there's also a shift towards maybe thinking about some men as vulnerable, whether it's through sexual violence or refugee uh, issues um, or migration questions. But to me, there's this, you know, maybe research which looked more at how do civilian men cope with war and cope with conflict. Um, So I think that sort of amplification is what starts to create I don't know if it creates more inclusive systems, if that's your question, because that's a much bigger question. But uh, but I think that amplification for me is, is is really important, and I'm seeing it in lots of people's work at the moment. Um, but uh, I think we need more of it.
0: Thank you, Brandon. Um, we've had uh, one more written question come in, and uh, and then I, I raised hand too. So it's um, is it even it's from Jose. Um, is it even possible to address masculinities? In DDR and SSR processes, if the structural systems in place uh, remain in place in countries, um, they push for a very specific way of being a man. So, is it possible to address masculinities in DDR and SSR if the structural systems in place push for a very specific way of being a man? So, I suppose it's the idea of sort of addressing masculinities through DDR and SSR if uh, broader gender norms in society remain fairly stable.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, thanks very much for that question. I mean, I don't, again, know if I have the exact exact answer to that, because in a way, it's really linking with the third sort of cluster of comments I was trying to make, which is that whatever we're doing is happening within these really big, powerful systems where masculinities are embedded in all sorts of different ways, whether that's in the, the arms industry, whether that's in the financial industry. And so we're sort of getting into these really big systemic type of, of questions. And, and and all I can say in uh, with with all due humility is that maybe just acknowledging that actually what we're dealing with is happening within these contexts is is, is a first uh, and important step, maybe not a very satisfying one, uh, but a first and important step. Um, and I think with SSR and DDR particularly, Um, you know if we look at how those processes are run uh, yes there are many positive things that are going on there in terms of the destruction of weapons and other types of issues but they're still often driven in a very masculine driven way you know this idea of sort of counting the guns you know if you look at a lot of footage of these programs it's you know military people overseeing it in military uniforms Um, and so in the very process of the destruction of certain types of military architecture we're showing that the guarantees of the that military architecture are other people in the military um and so to me there must be other ways of doing that and of course we've seen community rituals and sculptures being created and and really impressive pieces of artwork i saw one recently uh, in in colombia where they'd you know built this floor a woman had built this uh room you know out of weapons that were I suppose hammered down in in, in some way, um, but but to me, it's not easy how to say how do you actually do it. But I think we have to be aware that actually in our very processes we're replicating other types of of masculinities discourses. So you know maybe it's too easy to say well more women should be involved in that process. That's not necessarily a guarantee it would go a certain way. But you know thinking of DDR as a, a community social gendered process rather than a quantitative qualitative uh, a qualitative a quantitative process in and of itself would change how we might do that um you know if you go into the peace building literature and you read on ddr the first few paragraphs will always say in ethiopia they destroyed x number of weapons in this country they destroyed x number of weapons it doesn't really start from saying what were the community dynamics of that and the gendered nature of that and and all of those types of questions so i think the simple answer would be include different people into the the process but that's not that easy
0: another question um it's from Eilish Rudy, our colleague uh can you speak to the analytical benefits of using intersectionality as a t- as a theory tool for surfacing systemic and structural gendered hierarchies that are central to the question of how does change happen
1: okay thanks Eilish um I sort of feel like you 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 would know the answer to that better than than me uh, in terms of your expertise on uh, on intersectionality. Um, I mean, but I think the way that I would use it uh, mostly is in relation to masculinities is really thinking about how masculinities themselves are intersectional in so many different ways. Um, and even that critique I raised around the sort of new man discourse is somehow missing. The fact that men are approaching relations, say in their families, from very different class positions, from very different ethnic type of positions and cultural types of of positions, and so to me, it's something which just has to sort of run all the way through the the analysis. And and I know from your own work, you guys have already done that. But um, you know, when as I as I did in this paper, really just look at those resolutions in a more sort of textual way. sort of nuance of intersectionality is just nowhere to really be seen running across uh, how um, you know what engagement means to you know a young boy who's living in a you know what what does engagement with about uh, reducing sexual violence mean to a young boy who is you know living in a in a gang culture in a certain community who's struggling to get food every day compared to a young boy in a middle class school who's been given a lecture on the liberal choice of you know what it means to be violent or not and how to control your emotions i mean those are just for me such fundamentally different issues um so it's maybe a very narrow way of thinking about doesn't quite address the systemic hierarchies question uh, but for me as a Really important analytical tool and how you might think about uh, those issues. So you could run it across the three points that I made uh, completely. Uh, I would think.
0: Uh, We've a question here from Mariana, uh, one of our LLM students, and she's quoting. she got a quote here from Philip Schultz, who's, who's also with us. Um, a masculinity's perspective can also imply risks of reinforcing an exclusive understanding of gender as only referring to men and women. Um, how do we challenge that that risk?
1: well if uh, if philip's here i should get philip to uh, answer answer that question um but it was a little bit linked to one of my caveats maybe which is a little bit thrown away at the beginning that, that i should have developed a little bit more but i do think that even the way and, and i would say even in my own work i'm sort of guilty of this the way we frame masculinities is still within a sort of very heteronormative idea of what is changing or not changing within certain gendered relations which tend to model a fairly western heteronormative sense of of uh, of masculinities um now partly uh, in the part of the papers that i didn't really develop here but it's where i sort of find the idea of the sort of social imaginary quite interesting because i think that uh without some sort of sense of of thinking about the future and and, and sort of projections of what uh, a gendered world might look like beyond the idea of men and women in a sort of very limited sense, creates a very different vision of how we might think about uh, masculinities more generally. So I don't know the, the easy answer than that, and maybe it's too simplistic to say, but like amplifying different masculinities, we need to amplify all these different types of of voices. Um, But, you know, I I think on some levels, a a bit like with feminism, you know, probably in a couple of years time, somebody will be writing saying, well, that was first wave masculinities, (laughs) whereas second wave masculinities was really starting to get too much more the the, the, the fluidity of, of gender identities that were reinforced to some degree in first wave forms of, of masculinities. Uh, if one is self-critical.
0: Question here from um, one of our PhD researchers, Hannah Davies, asking a methodological question. So she says textual analysis of the Security Council resolutions are quite particular objects. Lots of already agreed language, role of the pen holder, etc how do you take into account the process resolutions get approved when considering masculinities, some of the limited imagination in the WPS agenda and maybe linked to that process?
1: Wow. That's a, that's a really good, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, in, I, I need to be honest and say I haven't, I didn't really in this paper, consider the processes of how that, played itself out and that would be really interesting to look at how different groups have lobbied and, and uh, the, you know, what gets taken on board and what doesn't get taken on board. And so I think it's a, a really, uh, really valuable point. Uh, seems like a good PhD topic for us to be uh, advertising, uh, Catherine. Um, so I haven't really taken that on board and I don't know if I could really um, pontificate about that in any way. Uh, I, I What I would say is that although I was there referring largely to the textual analysis, what I was maybe putting that next to was not the process, but also the literature. So there is a, a massive literature on uh, on on these issues and on masculinities, uh, particularly. And I would say I can't say this completely empirically and scientifically, but I would say that the violation centric focus, the sort of engagement with issues is quite individual and project driven and the lack of focus on the sort of systemic nature of masculinities is broadly mirrored within in the literature Um, i would say i mean not exclusively because there are people who obviously written against that but uh, so i can't comment so much on the process and i think that would be a great a great addition Um, but you know uh, having said all of that i mean i do think that the language makes a difference so whether that ends up being agreed and it's codified and it's limited by its very nature of the way that it's formed it, you know, it still shapes our reality. For want of a better way of, 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 of putting it.
0: Okay, so, uh, thank you for that. Um, so, the, so the next question is from Lainey, uh, another of our PhD researchers. Um, I was just going to ask if we have a way of talking about female combatants. Do we talk about them in terms of masculinity, or are they actually not masculine because they are women, even if they are fulfilling traditional masculine roles?
1: So, yeah, I often get this question and I get myself tied up in knots trying to answer it. Um, So, for me, masculinities are a representation of a certain, as I said, ways of doing male. So it's not necessarily restricted to the female or the male body in that sense. It's a set of of practices. So, um, you know, in the same way as we can talk about certain women politicians enacting forms of masculinity uh you know i would say the same in terms of 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 competence now it creates all sorts of like really complicated intellectual problems that i haven't quite got my head around but my short answer is that it's not restricted to the body in which it's enacted from it's rather a set of practices against a set of normative social assumptions about maleness um if that makes any sense but uh, would be a good thing to be Debating, uh, I struggle with it a little bit myself, but I don't, I don't see it as a restricted in that way.
0: That's really helpful, thank you, Brandon. Um The next question is from Stroon Kennedy. Is there an issue in the branding of masculinities where certain militarized expressions continue to be so successful in quote selling their notion image of the heroic male? If we compare this to how alternative nonviolent masculinity is represented, it tends to be less able to embed its values in audiences. It would seem difficult to challenge the former as it's historically legitimized, or is the challenge in somehow making peace making peace building more dramatic or exciting?
1: So the the when I at the beginning I said that I'd sort of done two papers, <laughs> probably the first one, which is about the social imagination and social imaginary and masculinities, probably touches more on this question. Um, and I think that you are completely right that in a way um, one doesn't seem to be able to challenge the dominance of certain types of uh, masculinities, although these are continually changing. So the example I gave of those posters, for example, I think that they're always fraying on the edges. It's never, uh, you know, as who's it, Clatterbach, I think says, you know, masculinities have always been in crisis. (laughs) Um, They're they're always being challenged in different types of ways. and I don't have the easy answer to that but what I point to in the other paper that I wrote uh, is really that I I don't know if we as those of us who are interested in alternative different types of masculinities have a way of of projecting a different idea of the world that is actually um something which people can ascribe to um and so uh, we have tended to push that forward in such a limited type of a way and that's been constrained by our liberal notions of policy change of what participation actually means so when we're asking people to describe to say a different world we don't really know what that actually really is Um, and so it makes it easier for people to ascribe to what they already know Um, so actually in the other paper i talk a little bit about Fukuyama's idea of the end of history and obviously I think that that's a bit of a, a ludicrous notion um, but by way of example I mean you know what he then says is like the ultimate form of government is the EU and if you think about something like the Brexit referendum we were you know forced to choose between uh, the it's the EU or uh, leaving the European Union and actually neither of those are really the types of worlds that we should be uh ascribing to and i use that by way of saying actually when it comes to how we think about gendered relations for me it's sort of quite similar Um, and so the only vision that's really being projected uh, is very much a sort of middle class new man metrosexual uh, cosmopolitan idea of what new forms of masculinity should be and these are completely culturally irrelevant in some contexts, and even in the context that they're in uh, are not particularly attractive to many people if that makes any any sense so for me there's a this is getting very esoteric but there's a there's a process of futurism almost that needs to happen and I think people who are working on um much more fluid ideas of of gender identity are are being able to articulate that better than maybe more traditional ways of of thinking about things but I think your essence your point is right I don't think we provide a vision for the future beyond a very limited liberal notion of equality.
0: From Schieffer, uh, how would you encourage Stroke advise international organizations, um, so those that are often involved in post-conflict reconstruction, uh, to acknowledge the local cultural context and their assumptions about masculinity, especially in situations which you have noted are top down and contend towards Western liberal ideals.
1: um don't know i'm always wary of how i would give advice i guess um i mean as a researcher you know one of the ways to answer that question short of giving advice is to say can one do proper research to amplify the different types of masculinities um And, you know, uh, Philip sitting there and and others. I mean, people who've done that type of work really demonstrated the complexity of those environments. Um, And so for a lot of international NGOs, as much as and I've worked in these organizations and consulted with them as well. And as much as we often talk about things like conflict sensitivity and basing your work on a proper analysis, we don't often actually do a proper analysis. Um, So one form of advice would be, do the research, unpack those different types of uh, senses of, of identity, um, and then at the risk of being a bit trite and giving advice, um, I would also say it's very important not to follow trends. I think that what happens in international communities there's this like these like zeitgeists that sort of develop at different points in time. You know, so like the notion of resilience, for example, which for me is a really really important concept, something that's really useful but it has also now become like a mantra, you know, so you just sort of put it in. And I think that engagement of young men and boys is, has the risk of becoming a similar thing where it just gets sort of put into your program without really thinking about what does that actually, what does that actually mean? So if I had to give general advice, I'd be like saying something like, don't follow, don't, just don't follow the trends, which is really difficult because the money, you know, the trends have money attached to them and, and that sort of stuff. But um over the years I've seen a lot of that where where are certain kind I, and I do feel like a little bit engaging men and boys is becoming a bit like a catchphrase um where it rolls itself out in a fairly standardized program without too much reflection which is not to say there aren't those out there who are doing that because that would be
0: unfair I mean what the questions I've sort of been asking at this series have tended to focus on you know what is the value of the Security Council uh, articulating an agenda like this, um, given its, you know, very problematic construction. Um, it's, you know, a site of, it's a sort of key place where the U- U.K. faces off, or sorry not the U.K., but the U.S. faces off against Russia, um, the site of kind of hyper-masculinity, um, kind of extraordinary contradictions really between action and sex, Um so I just I'm interested in your reflections on that. I mean, I, I asked ask the question as an international lawyer, but I'm interested in what it means for, for a peace builder. Um, what is the significance and value of having the Security Council leading this agenda?
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, in some ways, you know, just as I said, despite the critiques that I was raising, I mean, it is unquestionable that uh, since the adoption, of uh, 1325 and the, the multiple resolutions since that, that issues of uh, you know women's involvement in, in peace building, the recognition of, of rape as a war crime, resources towards those issues have changed massively. Um, and so, although I would be critical of the limits of that as I was in the, in, the, in the paper, I mean, in and of itself, I think that points to the value when something does get driven from the top down that it can make that it can make change and so it would be naive to say oh, or i don't know whatever not valuable to say well because it doesn't get everything right we're not going to bother doing it, uh, which I know is not what you're saying, but like, to me, that in and of itself is a demonstration that actually you can do some positive things. Um, and I do think that the subtle change in language, the subtle change in emphases from those powerful institutions do have a way of, of, of trickling of trickling down in different, uh, that's the wrong phrase to use, but in the way of shaping, uh, shaping society, um, and so I do see there's some, some value in that. That then, and maybe it goes back to the brilliant question about process, Um, maybe that then has to be offset against the civil society groups, the academics, those with alternative positions who maybe need to be, or are, but need to continue to articulate alternative positions to that. And I mean, I know from myself, you know, I would exactly what you're saying. I mean, for me, the Security Council is a prime example of enactment of forms of masculinity. So it seems quite contradictory to be saying, let's use that as a structure to try and undo masculinities. But, you know, on some level, yes, that is the reality of the world. So we need to deal with some of the structures that we're dealing with. But equally, and I'd put myself in this book, in this boat, I don't think we then critique those institutions enough, you know. So, you know, I've made various inputs at different UN and other types of meetings and I'm probably never forthright enough to say you know American Russia you do are enacting a really problematic form of masculinity you know we maybe don't be as confrontational as we possibly could which maybe again reinforces another type of masculinity but um, you know I think we need to use what we can use and we need to widen that agenda but then we need to offset I think we just need to be bolder in that that criticism which is not to say that People are not bolder. And then the third thing, which for me is that slightly more amorphous stuff I've been talking about the social imaginary is that I think we need to somehow be creating a different idea of the future that, I don't really know what that is, but I don't think the the idea of the future that we create now as some sort of the best case scenario is a sort of federated liberal peace structure managed by the EU or something like that is our, is the be all and end all of what the world should be thinking about. And I would say the same for gender relations so we sort of need this futurism idea at the same the radical social imaginary idea at the same time as those other two pieces for me.
0: Brilliant, oh, thank you so much Brandon that was really incredibly rich um, uh, and really 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 helpful I think. Um, I think we've come to the end of the formal questions, so I think it might be at this point it's probably appropriate to wrap up. Unfortunately, given the format, we can't arrange a round of applause, but uh, we'll send you a virtual one, Brandon. um, And uh, certainly from the level of engagement with questions and and attendance, uh, clearly a lot of interest and a lot of appreciation for for the contribution. So thank you very much. Thank you to everyone for attending. Um, The series will continue in, uh, so please stay in touch with us, uh, and we'll we'll keep you updated. We'd we'd love to see you again on the.